You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would send your spirit into this place to open the ears of our hearts to hear your word, that your spirit would speak to us and call us into relationship with you, that we might be called a child of God. And Lord, for those of us who are children of God, we pray that you would imprint upon our hearts the truth and assurance of that which is come by our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You will find it helpful uh, to have your Bibles open to 1 John chapter 3, which is on page 1022 in your pew Bibles, uh, because uh, the lectionary unhelpfully uh, leapfrogs over the entirety of chapter 2. So we're kind of coming in halfway through a conversation, and it's important that we be able to look back and put this passage from chapter 3 in its right context. In chapter 2, John the one whom Jesus loved, who we have the gospel of John from, has spent much of that chapter talking about those who were undermining the faith, the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints in the life of the church. These people were a part of a congregation. They're not fringe characters or those who were suspected of holding wrong ideas about God. They taught Sunday school served on church committees. They were part of prayer meetings. They held high offices. They might have been pastors or even bishops. But time would prove that they were not believers. John would go so far as to call them antichrists, that is, those who have set themselves over and against Jesus and his teachings. And these people would leave the fellowship of the church. John says in chapter 2, verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. Understandably, this caused great confusion and anxiety in the midst of the church. Uh, Those who remained must have asked themselves, well, I was in a Bible study with them for years, Uh, but I saw them active on Sunday mornings. And if they have fallen away, how do I know that the same fate doesn't await me? How do I know that I am a child of God? And so in chapter 3, John turns his attention to this question of how do I know that I am a child of God? How can I be sure that I am in a life-saving relationship with him? How do I have the assurance that I am a son or daughter of the living God? Well, John declares that we are children of God. But what makes someone a child of God? If you want to keep your finger in at 1 John chapter 3, you can turn back to this same apostle who wrote the gospel of John. And in chapter 1, listen to how John describes how it is that we become a child of God. This is the definition for what makes someone a child of God. Verse 12, but to all who did receive him, that is Jesus, who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, 
nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. What is John saying here? Well, we become children of God by the fact that God sends his spirit into our hearts that causes the blindness to fall from our eyes to be able to see ourselves in our sinful state and Jesus for who he is as our great redeemer and rescuer and allows our hearts to turn to him. God is the initiator. God is the one that draws us into relationship with him. But John here also tackles some misunderstandings about what, that people might hold about how it is that we're children of God. He says, first, you don't become a child of God simply by being born of, or of your blood. We don't come into this world as natural-born children of God. Now, of course, each and every single one of us are born and bear the image of God. That's beyond dispute. But the type of child of God, one who's in a relationship, who knows God as Father through the Lord Jesus Christ, that doesn't happen simply by being born. Jesus got into any number of conversations about this. Uh, There was a group of people who said, we really don't have to worry about our relationship with God because we have Abraham as our father. And Jesus said, "I I tell you the truth. I can take these rocks on the ground and make them children of Abraham. It's not your genetic pedigree that makes you a child of God. You can't say, well, my grandmother, she sure was faithful. And so therefore, I'm a Christian. No, we're not naturally born into it. It doesn't come because of the blood that courses through our veins, nor is it the will of the flesh. Again, it's God that takes the initiative, who draws us into relationship. I've never been able to argue anybody into a relationship with God. Never. God does that work. Nor of the will of man, but of God. We can't impress our faith on anyone. So it's not a matter of, I know that I'm a Christian because I come to church on Sunday. Nor is it a matter of, I'm a Christian because I've been baptized and confirmed. The question is, have you come to the Lord Jesus Christ by grace through faith? That's the question that is being asked, and that's what John is holding up. You are a child of God if you're in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's what makes a child of God. And John wants us to see that the truth of our being children of God is born out in certain tests that we will encounter in life. In the first section of our reading from 1 John 3, he asks, how does the child of God face the future? That's verses 1 through 3. And then in verses 4 through 10, John asks, secondly, how does the child of God face sin? Well, how does the child of God face the future? Notice in verse 2 that John says we are God's children now. We begin to live into the assurance that we belong to Jesus and Jesus belongs to us. Yes, we look forward to the full realization of our salvation when we see Jesus face to face. But you and I, by grace, are children of God right now. It's not some future event. But even now, God calls us his sons and daughters. 
And when we come into a relationship with God, not only is our status changed, later on John would say that you're a child of the devil or you're a child of God, not only does your status change from being a child of the devil to a child of God, much more than that, your nature changes. There's a change in in who you are in your inner being. The very spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now dwells within you. You've not only been declared a child of God because of what Jesus did for you upon the cross and is being raised from the dead and is sending his spirit into you so that you might come alive in him, but it is by that regenerating spirit that you are not only a child of God in status, but in nature as well. You have a new status and a new nature. Paul writes in Romans 8.15, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Daddy, Father. As Christians, because of this truth, we live in hope. And the more we hope in Jesus, the more we grow into him. The more the family resemblance is made known. And we seek, in John's words, to be purified. As I've grown older, faithfulness has taken on greater significance in my life. As a son of God, a husband, a father, a pastor. And when I'm tempted to go back on God's word, it's not simply, I won't, that I say. But more and more, I find myself saying, I can't. Do you know the difference between I won't and I can't? I won't indicates an unwillingness but I can't indicates an inability, an impossibility to go back. Of course, this truth in the life of the Christian is manifested negatively and positively. In the negative, it means not being able to go back on God's word even when that makes you largely unpopular in the world. It's not lost on me that on this very day, 500 years ago, April 18th, 1521, Martin Luther stood before the Diet of Worms and made his famous speech. And Justin Taylor describes that event in this way. On the day of his arrival, that was the day before, April 17th, Luther was asked two questions by these dignitaries, these great high members of the Roman Catholic Church and even the Holy Roman Emperor. These two questions were asked of Luther. Do you acknowledge having written these 20 books lying here? They were all spread out. And secondly, are you prepared to retract them as a whole or in part? Well, Luther was taken aback. He was expecting a debate, not a yes or no answer. After Luther's lawyer objected, let the titles of the books be read, Luther responded in a barely audible voice, The books are all mine, and I have written more. As to the second question, Luther responded, 
This touches God and his word. This affects the salvation of souls. Of this Christ said, He who denies me before men, him will I deny before my Father. To say too little or too much would be dangerous. I beg you, give me time to think it over. And so the assembly reluctantly gave Luther 24 hours to think it over, and he responded the next evening with his famous answer. He was asked again, Martin, answer candidly and without horns. Do you or do you not repudiate your books and the errors which they contain? Luther replied, Since then, your imperial majesty and your lordships demand a simple answer. I will give you one without teeth and without horns. Unless I am convicted of error by the testimony of Scripture or by manifest evidence, I cannot and will not retract, for we must never act contrary to our conscience. Here I stand. God help me. Amen. For Luther, it was not a matter of ego. Surely he heard the voice of his antagonist who was there on the scene, Eck, who would taunt him and ask Luther, do you think that you're the only one who knows what they're talking about? Are you so sure that you would even set yourself up seemingly against the whole world? Are you that arrogant? But Luther, being convicted by the word of God, realized it wasn't just a matter of I won't go back, but I can't. As a child of God, I cannot go back because I know whom I have believed. And so that negative side is going to set us up against sin, the world, and the devil. That's what we say in our baptism service. That's what we prepare for. But it also affects things on the positive side. Does not our heart cry out when we see our neighbor in need? I cannot leave them in this state. I must help them. What can I do to show God's love for I cannot sit idle? I see my brother, I see my sister in pain, in need, in struggle. I cannot stand by and watch it. I must go and hold their arms up in the midst of the battle. That's the positive side of it. Because we see what kind of love the Father has given to us and is made manifest amongst one another and how we love one another. Simon Kistemacher said, Love is not private, passive, or abstract. Love is explicit, active, and intimate. And because of that, we face the future in hope with a life that is bound to Christ. We abide in him, as John says, and we cannot be anything but a child of God. But along the way, this is easier said than done because of the condition of sin that we all suffer from. So in the midst of this changed status and changed nature... How does the child of God face sin? Because we know that even as redeemed people, we are this mix of righteousness and sin. We feel it. 
Paul in Romans 7 called it a war, a battle within ourselves. And the remaining verses from our text this morning are some of the most troubling in the Bible if taken in isolation. Look at verse 6. No one who abides in Jesus keeps on sinning. Well, if that's the case, who amongst us here this morning can say that we're Christians? Because isn't that true for us? So what does John mean? Is sin in our lives an evidence that we are not children of God? Well, that can't be what John is saying. If you look back at chapter 1, verse 8 through 10, John says this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then down to verse 10, If we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar and his word is not in us. So he's not saying if you sin, it means that you're not a child of God. So what does John mean? Well, John is not speaking of the issue that so many of us face and that many of us, when you hear this verse, that he who continues to abide in sin uh, has no part of Jesus. I don't know about you, but where my mind goes are those particular sins that I am woefully aware of that I struggle with intensely in my life. And Satan creeps into my ear and says, how can you call yourself a Christian? When you do and you say and you act in such a way. That's where my mind goes, to that one thing. Maybe those few things, maybe even those many things. The thing that we can't seem to stop doing. The thing that no matter how hard we've prayed, tried, and attempted to break, it seems to always creep back in. But listen to this. The fact that you are struggling mightily against that sin is evidence that you are a child of God. Later on, John says that children of the devil make a practice of sinning. What does it mean to make a practice of sinning? It means that sin dominates your life. Not just one particular or a few particular or even a many uh, manifestation of sin in your life, but sin in total. In a word, John is saying here, if sin is your master... If that's the overarching, dominating force in your life as to how you live in this world, then you're not abiding in Jesus. And John defines sin as lawlessness, which is a funny way of saying it. But sin is living so as to ignore the law of God and to rebel against his will for our lives. When I was in seminary over in England, I was in a shop And the shop uh, had very nice things in it. And there was a man in there with his child. And the child was being terrible. The child was acting out. The child was picking up things. The child was running down the aisles. And the father was doing everything in his power to bring this child under control. Please don't do that. Please don't touch that. I've asked you to stop doing that. And this child finally stopped in front of a case of things. And the child went to reach for this very delicate object, and the, ch- and the father said, stop right now. And the child turned and looked at his father, 
and with a curled lip said to him, Get lost! That's what John is talking about here. When we get to a place in our lives or find ourselves in a place where we look at God and say, get lost. That's lawlessness. Sinning, persistent sinning, as said here, is not one particular sin but it's that rebellion that is constant against God. An unchanged life is the sign of an unredeemed soul. And by change, I don't mean just simply morally. I mean a changed heart. Where all of a sudden, even though you don't want to listen to God, you know that you have no other choice. And this change is evidenced by a believer's struggle against sin, the world, and the devil. After all, verse 5 tells us, Jesus came to do what? To take away sins. God's purpose is to separate us from sin, just as sin's purpose is to separate us from God. The child of God no longer knows sin as their master. Sin is still there, but it no longer has ultimate dominion over us. If it does, then we are still walking in darkness. I love how John Newton described himself. John Newton, a slave trader who God got a hold of and changed his life, and he wrote Amazing Grace, the hymn that we sing so often. But hear how John Newton describes his own Christian life. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. But I, and I am not what I hope to be. But still, I am not what I once was. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's the testimony of a Christian. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Are you a child of God? Have you, by God's grace, turned to Jesus Christ in faith? If you have, you face the future in hope as a son and daughter of the living God. And even though sin doth remain, as the articles tell us, it no longer has dominion over you, as Jesus himself has come into the world to break those chains of bondage and to set you free in him and bask in his marvelous grace. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that those of us who do not know you as our Father, as Abba, that by your Spirit you would call us into relationship with you, that you would break our hard hearts and that we might forsake the idols in our hearts, that you would cast out the master of sin and that Jesus would take up his rightful throne. And Lord, those of us who are your sons and daughters that struggle mightily in this world, remind us that we are not a people who struggle without hope and that the victory is ours in Jesus Christ. And because of him, we are a child of God for eternity. And nothing and no one can ever change our status nor change us back. For not only will not, we cannot. For the sake of Jesus Christ, amen.
You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. 